We have all these special interests who have mastered the game of lobbying. I think it's about time that more groups like Cicero Action take principled ideas and use the special interest playbook against them so that we can finally beat them. Joe Lonsdale. Welcome to American Optimist. Really excited to have Jared Meyer with me here today who runs Cicero Action. Welcome, Jared. Hey, happy to be here, Joe. Uh, you know, we've had an amazing first year. We've got think, over 10 laws passed in different states. We're working in nine states, expanding to 12 or 13 now. We think you can pass another 20 or 30 laws coming up next year. Really optimistic about Cicero. Excited to talk to you about it today. Yeah, I think there's a lot that we can uh, show on how to make a difference, even in divided times and when DC is a complete mess. When people hear the word lobbying, a lot of people are, are kind of disgusted by it. They think it's this negative thing. We've kind of stolen that playbook to try to apply it to these positive, optimistic ideas to test them out and test out innovation at the state level. And, and how do you see this? Yeah. I mean, I think lobbying is just a way for people to get in front of legislators. It depends on what they're lobbying for. That's why it has the negative connotation. We have all these special interests who have mastered the game of lobbying. I think it's about time that more groups like Cicero Action take principled ideas and use the special interest playbook against them so that we can finally beat them. So let's give an example of how this works. We come up with different ideas. We're trying to take ideas that put innovation into government in positive ways. So one area that needs a lot of innovation is public safety. And so the, so the way probation works, we talk a lot about this, is that maybe you should actually measure it. Maybe you should measure the recidivism rates. Maybe you should have some kind of transparency and accountability for probation or parole officers. And it turns out that when some states did this, it worked really well. So we're trying to take this to other states and teach them how to use how to use transparency, accountability, the types of things you have that allow competition of ideas in society. So we go to people and we pitch them on this. And who's who's pushing back? Are they is they too busy? They're ignoring you. Like like how do you how do you how do you get people to pay attention? Do we actually draft legislation for some of them? Yeah. And so just to give you a little bit of an insight into the life of a state legislator, because this is something that I've realized a lot of people have no idea what goes on day to day for them. In most states, state legislators don't even have policy staff. It'll be like three House members sharing one scheduler. And their days are over and over, 20-minute meeting after 20-minute meeting, running to committee hearings, running to floor votes. Is it mostly fundraising? Is it some, some of it's with people that are trying to figure out what to do as, as a ruler? Like, what are they doing? It's because of the state legislators have so many bills in front of them, so they have lobbyists coming in all the time to try to educate them on the so bill. So their whole day pass. is getting educated by different lobbyists, many of whom may be very sketchy. Yes, but it just like they are so busy and they don't have help. So that's why when groups are trying to come in and influence policy or help these state lawmakers, the best thing you can do is be an outsourced staff for them. Give them the resources they need and work behind the scenes to make sure they understand the policy and have all the resources they need. Well, to what succeed. does that mean? Like They're obviously not going to trust you fully because you're coming yeah. in to try to convince them of something. So how, how can you be a staff when, when they can't trust you? Well, the thing that helps is they're used to mostly having, let's say, big companies or trade associations come in with lobbyists. So if you're a policy group where you're not making any profit off this you're actually losing donation you know the it, money it, people it are is donating. expensive yes yeah it's it's something they're not used to seeing so if they view the world in the same way that you do and are big problem solvers so if you, really sh- if you could show that you have some shared values mm-hmm. shared goals 
then it kind of opens up their mind to say, okay, teach me, given these shared values, why this makes sense. Show me, show me the data. Show me the, show me the argument. Is that, that's, that's, that's what's happening. Yeah. I mean, most people went to the state house because they want to make a positive difference in their community. But once they got there, they realized it was just no time, no extra bandwidth. And instead it's just reacting over and over. You're not in the driver's seat as much. You're just trying to respond to everything being thrown at you. So any way that you can make someone feel more prepared and let them really champion issue that they care about, that's where I see good partnerships developing. So, so when you come and get to know these people, you have multiple policy issues you're working on and different people will kind of glom on the different ones depending on what their focus is. Oh, definitely. Yeah. You don't want to come in and try to say this is our way or the highway. You don't want to have like one thing you're trying to get them to push. You want to have eight things or 12 things and then they'll make one or two or three most people maybe would, would like. Is that? Yeah. It's Cicero action. We try to use what we call a policy menu where it's clustered into groups like healthcare or public safety or higher education, you know, on down the line. But there may be four or five different reforms in there because someone could care about, well, let's reward someone who finds work when they're on parole and probation by giving them earned time credits so that when they find a job, that's what we want them to do. We'll cut down the amount of time they so have, you have to different. Be. So that's an idea that's been proven to work that you could teach people this is a better way to, re- to, to reform your criminal justice system. Yes. But then other people may not be interested in that area and they would rather work on incentive funding for when parole and probation officers do a better job. So coming in with different options, that's where you really can see that, you know, you can find areas of alignment. Are there some leaders that are polymaths and they just like every area and engage with you on everything? Or <laughs> there, I, I have walked out of a few meetings where it's like I don't think you can physically carry twelve bills for us this but, year. But, but, but they're, they're so fired up. I mean, this is this is again lobbyists, lawmakers. They all get bad names because we see what's going on in D.C. These are community leaders who maybe just got to know everyone in their area. They care about policy and they're giving up a lot to go to the state house. There's some states you make as little as thirteen thousand dollars a year for a quote unquote part-time legislature, but really they're there they're all, the all the time. Yeah. What, what are, what are lobbyists making? Like what are these people oh, making? Geez, a lot of money. That is some uh, of them make a lot of money and, yes. and, and, and who's paying them all this money is it, it's corporations mostly. Yeah. And what's interesting is with lobbying, most of it's on defense. So what happens is a giant corporation will hire maybe five or six lobbying firms, all the top ones in a state, just so that if something goes wrong, they can activate them. And those guys will then go and try to kill a bill that's going to cause problems for the corporation. It's, mo- it's mostly blocking things. And when you hire the best lobbyists, that means they're conflicted out. So let's say if a giant hospital system hired the 10 best lobbyists in the state. This, and- is, this is tough for us, basically, because we're trying to do things to make healthcare less sketchy and, and higher quality and lower costs. And that's the policy, obviously, that we all want. I mean, use, using markets and using innovation. And a lot of times, so so how, how do you deal with that? We go into a state, health healthcare, healthcare interests must be some of the biggest special interests, right? Most, oh, 100%. Most yeah, I'd say it's the top two, the insurers and the providers. So insurers means insurance companies, the payers, and the providers means the health systems, the hospitals, and, and, and the and, you know, people who own any kind of providing you know, clinics and whatnot. Is it mostly hospitals that are the most powerful of the providers or, or it's all of them? I would say it's a mix, but the good news is no lobbyist represents the hospitals or the providers and the insurers because they're always fighting with each they're, other. They're, so you kind of have to already pick. fighting. Yep. So when you go into an area to get something done, unfortunately, you usually have to be on one side or the other. You're saying that's yeah, that's, just because that's just the West's boundaries of power that have been set up. Mm-hmm. And so tell me, tell me about this. Like we 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 work with a lot of different people. Some of them are very frustrated. You know, when I first approached this world, I kind of assumed there'd just be like these really powerful interests that were really scary, and they would be crushing people and people be afraid to stand up to them. And mostly that's not what I'm seeing. Mostly there's not 
that many power from just like in Florida with, you know, when we talk to them, like they're actually able to get a lot of things done, but it seems like, it seems like the health interests are probably the scariest, most powerful interests. Is that, is that your experience as well? Yeah, I would say they're the top two. And then in states you have random ones like the car dealers or the cosmetologists or some things that you would never the, think the, would the be The car dealers like. are like the people who didn't let Elon Musk sell his Tesla cars in Texas. He had to take them out of Texas and bring them back to sell them. Right. Yes. And yet, even people like the car dealers get what they want in states. So that's why I thought when you're working on policy that's actually good policy, not like keeping Elon Musk Teslas out of a state, if you just copy the car dealer's playbook, the sky's really the limit. So what's the car dealer's playbook? First of all, you hire lobbyists. Often they get involved in campaigns, which is not something that Cicero Action does, but then they will do everything for the lawmakers. They'll come in and give them all the talking points about why Elon Musk is evil and why Teslas are terrible for public safety and whatever else they want to make up. And they'll work completely behind the scenes, giving them the legislators the support they need. What support they need. So they're, they're, they're funding their campaigns. They're what else are they doing? Uh, well, writing bills for them. That's a key part. And then giving them all the talking points, scaring up whatever fear mongering they want to do, uh, talking to other legislators so that the bill. Has Is there pass. some quid pro quo? Like if like these people all of a sudden just don't pass this bill as the main thing is they just won't get a donation next time. They might fund their primary opponent. Like what's, what's the, what's the real power? Well, that's the hammer that a lot of special what's interests the use. They say that we'll fund your primary opponent or we'll start running just kind of attack ads in general on the issue. Be like, you know, representative X doesn't care about children. Put that on a billboard or something does like that, that. Does that work to, to make people lose or just scares them a little bit? I think it mostly scares them. There's certain issues where the public, if they actually care about it, that can be effective. But in a lot of times it's all bark, no, bite. Like, I think that legislators are slowly wising up to the idea that even when they come in with this big hammer, often it's just inflatable. It's not going to do anything if they bring it down. So let, let's talk about the, the innovation and parole and probation, and then let's talk about the healthcare stuff. So the innovation and parole and probation, you've, you've got a couple laws passed so far with this? Yeah, I've been able to work with lawmakers in quite a few states where there's a lot of interest in attacking public safety in a way that is actually smart and rewards the outcomes we want. So one of them, I'd say the most successful model was in Arizona, where they completely overhauled how their probation and parole systems are funded so that the individual offices compete against their past performance. And when they can drive down recidivism, so people going back to prison for technical violations or new crimes, when they can come up with creative ways to do that, they get to share in the direct savings they generated for the state. So this actually passed unanimously. What, when you Arizona. say they get to share, the department gets to share? Or, uh, the or? individual offices themselves. Wow. And what we really want is, look, I don't know how to solve recidivism. I'm not smart enough to do that. But the people on the ground, when they can get rewarded for succeeding, that's the kind of bottom-up innovation. The, then they study and try new things. Yeah, exactly. Maybe it's one, uh, I talked to quite a few parole offices and I'd ask them, you know, what would you do with extra money? And they, some of them even said buy new cars because a lot of the officers are driving around really old cars that break down all the time. That's not something as me living in D.C. and state capitals is ever going to figure but out. They, but, they, but they care about that. But, and, and then the theory of society, of course, is that putting the decision and the innovation to the level of the people on the ground, that actually is what works best in a free society as opposed to us telling them what they should be doing. Yeah. And that's why I like the issues that Cicero Action works on, because I've noticed over and over in D.C. especially, I think it's like this academia culture, people want top down solutions. Even quote-unquote conservatives think that if something works somewhere once, they can mandate it, and therefore it's going to work everywhere else. I mean, I think the true insight of conservative or right-leaning policy is that those closest to the ground are best at solving a problem. And so let's let's go back to actually getting stuff passed, mm -hmm. which you're in charge of here. 
Uh, so the, how, how'd you get the probation? How'd you get this passed in Arizona? Like, what is that? What, what can you tell us? Yeah. yeah so I went, uh, it, lobbying is an in-person game. If you're not on the ground, you're not doing lobbying. I don't care what you say. Like during COVID, the lobbyists who tried to stay home, they didn't get anything done. So I went uh, right after I came on board, met with a few leaders in Arizona, saw that they were open to this idea, and then found a freshman representative who actually used to run a junk hauling business and employed a lot of people who were on probation. Cool. And he thought, this is a great idea because he remembered stories where his workers would come in and say, yeah, you know, I was in and out of the system. A lot of these officers really didn't care about me at all. They didn't set me up to succeed. I got one officer who believed in me, and now you know I'm providing for my family. So he was all fired up. So he realized it really matters to make the officers care about these people. Yes, that's what really resonated with him. So we brought Cicero's research and helped, depending on what works in Arizona and where he wanted to go, writing up a bill. And then throughout the entire process, because he was carrying about five or six other bills as his first yep. year learning during COVID, you know how to be a state representative. We needed to make sure he had all the resources so that when he had to defend this on the floor or in committee so hearings. when people were attacking him he needed the facts he needed to know like how to answer things yeah and the good news is during the committee hearings i mean you had representatives just saying this is really innovative like there are a bunch of good ideas but so many of the bills that get introduced just aren't interesting so legislators as i said they're all secretly a little bit of policy geeks so when they can hear something cool and their brains start going they really like it and you get and so so you, you put this out there. We got people on our side. Did people attack this one, or was it attacked by any of the probation groups? So this one is the one state where even the department was on board. And what's crazy is this is effectively all carrots, no sticks. You get money if you do better, and if you do worse, I mean nothing happens. Just the so this, was this an expensive thing to add to the budget? I know they're cutting taxes in Arizona. So how did you get that through? So you had to. This was what was called a money bill, which means it has to go through the budget. But even though it's not paying out any money unless the state actually sees savings, you still have to appropriate some money. So that adds Got a whole it. nother step. So it actually saves the state money because overall people are less likely to go back to prison and they're only you're sharing some of the savings if yep. they don't go back to prison. So overall it just saves the state money, but it still counts as a money bill. Yeah, you it's just how budget works. So that adds a whole nother step where it has to go into closed room negotiation with House leadership, Senate leadership. Oh, so people like this because it's better for the people on probation and it's better for society and it's and it saves money overall. Yeah. What's interesting though is like I always thought saving money would be an effective point across all reforms. Like everything I've always worked on when I was why at, not why not save money? Yeah. It it really doesn't matter. People as don't much. care so much. It's not their money, you know. Yeah, maybe that's it. But <laughs> also it's you know, if it's a good policy, there are things that leaders are willing to invest in. So it's it's helpful that this actually does save the state money, but I've found that's not as effective of a talking point. And this is one of the key things. If you're not out there testing things, like this is kind of the bottom-up philosophy applied to policy now. Sure, you can sit in you know an ivory tower and come up with a perfect policy, but until you're actually selling it and getting real-time feedback, you have no idea what's going to be this the most effective very messaging. So Cicero Institute, the C3, it's, it's very different. When you ask C4, it suddenly it suddenly creates this feedback loop of trying to iterate and see what's possible to get done in society, mm -hmm. which mo it seems like most of the big think tanks are missing that in DC. Why, why, why don't more big think tanks in DC or other places have this arm where they're actually having to be useful to society and get things done? That's, it's, it's always confused me. Yeah. Well, I think one reason is it's just not that sexy to be on the ground in state capitals, which are often tiny cities in it's the a, middle of the state. It's, 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 it's a lot of work and you have failures along with successes. Maybe people don't want to expose themselves to possible failures. Well, also, it's just more fun to go on Fox News or write a scathing op-ed where you rip on someone in D.C. You get a more attention. You get to go to the cocktail party. Your whole reality is on 
Twitter and Fox News and the cocktail parties as opposed to actually doing things in the real world. It's interesting. Well, I think a lot of DC groups are stuck in the 1980s when Congress still functioned. So they think the entire point is only talk about DC, write papers, put people on blast when they do something that they don't want them to do. Whereas instead, it were, I see Congress is completely dysfunctional right now. It's a complete waste of money to focus on trying to get anything through there. Which is why we're working on a bunch of states. Yeah. And also, People tend to believe that something that happens in DC trickles down and comes to the states eventually, you know, like viewing it as almost a backwater area. It's the exact opposite. The states create the innovative policy and then that and then bubbles DC up. DC will, will copy what works. Let's, let's, now let's go to the harder problems. We haven't had yet as much success in healthcare. We haven't really focused on it as much, but we're going to now. Um, Tell me a little bit about the story of, of health of healthcare interests killing something easily or stopping something easily that would have been good for a state. Well, I used to work quite a bit on licensing reforms in previous roles that I had, and what you saw is over and over, if the doctors didn't like something, they I mean every legislator has a family doctor, so they can call them the the uh, state medical association is a heavy player. Well, shouldn't we listen on. to doctors? They they, they know about medicine. <laughs> I I do think COVID may have helped us in that way. I'm putting some things into question, but it's it's almost the top two groups, as I said, are providers and insurers in states. And then you also have doctors who play an outsized role. What's a really good reform that's like clearly right for a state that they were able to kill? Well, OK, so this shows you how like naive even I still am. I assumed after covid telehealth was going to be fully legalized everywhere. Like this was the biggest no brainer. We did this natural experiment and allowing it and nothing went wrong. It actually helped us, like saved us. So telehealth clearly saves money, lets people practice yeah. from anywhere responsibly. Uh, Florida allows it now. Yeah, Florida and one other state. That's and, it. And, 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 and so, so how would they, like, was there a debate in some states where then the, they just were too afraid to allow it because it would anger the health systems or what? Well, what you see is a lot of times the real debate happens before a bill's even introduced. There's a lot of behind the scenes moving to try to kill ideas. So what I'm actually a fan of so is- These are the 10 lobbyists the health system hired to yeah. just kill it, basically. Yeah. But what's great is if you can get a bill out on something like telehealth, the benefits are so clear that fighting in the public is not what special interests like doing. That, they like fighting behind they the scenes. They don't like to, to fight the bill publicly because it's so obvious that they're being the bad guys. Yep, exactly. So our job is to get some of these things out where people could see, okay, this is obviously good. And then it's harder for the for the bad guys to kill it. Yeah. And I'm, I'm still optimistic long-term on healthcare. It's just going to take a while because also state legislators, like think of your incentive structure if it's an issue you're not really familiar with as a legislator. If you're getting a lot of calls and meetings, it's enough to just raise questions. Be like, I'm not so sure on this anymore. A lot of people are saying this. Let's just punt and go to next year. There's a couple hundred other bills we can focus on. So getting out ahead and really setting the narrative does help. And that's why some of this stuff does take time. The other uh, thing that really surprises me is the first question I'll get in most states is who else has done this? So to work on transformational, transformational brand new ideas, it's key to just get it passed in one state. It doesn't matter which state. They just don't want to be the first. Being the first, you have to have a real innovator. Yeah. And I would say there are a few states, uh, Arizona and Florida and Utah are three that we work in. Those, those really, are innovative places. Yeah, they actually like going first. And that's really rare. It's not something I see in a lot of But that's of great. Places. So you have a few innovators we partner with. And then, and then once you prove that it works, then you can bring it to 10 or 20 other states pretty quickly. Yep. 
what's up? I want to go one more story of the bad guys. I think this was really fun when there's like these people who are like just clearly wrong. And so, so one of them is like these health systems trying to enforce their monopolies and trying to, you know, do all sorts of things to stop people from, you know, working outside of them and abuse their power on that. Um, I think some of these homeless groups have been really interesting to me as another, this is a very strange bad guy for some people. Cause you obviously have like, aren't homeless groups. They're going to try to help the homeless and they're just compassionate and they're helping least amongst us. And that would have been my view on this 10 years ago or even five years ago as well. Uh, but we've seen a lot of these groups are, are kind of radical, very far left groups that, that are, seems like, seems like a, they're making a lot of money for themselves and their friends because the budgets are going way up in the cities around this. And then their incentive, I think that when the words of one of them is to, is to make sure you show people capitalism is not working by putting homelessness in people's faces. And they've done this in these cities with policies that have caused much higher homicide, much higher drug trafficking, sex trafficking, just really bad for the homeless, bad for these cities. And so, and so we've, we've, I know we've gone in with along with others and try to put in some transparency and say, okay, if you're going to spend money on homeless groups, let's have transparency on where the money goes. Let's have metrics that we track just to kind of see what's going on here. And uh, I know, I know we tried to do this in a couple of states where the governor's even on our side and in these groups just like made everyone go crazy. Like, tell me a little bit about what happened here. This is wild. I've been in a lot of bad fights. Nothing is as ugly as the fight over homelessness. Like I truly think it's the homelessness industrial complex because I thought it's so obvious what you left in San Francisco, that model of allowing people to sleep on the streets anywhere they want, do drugs anywhere they want, that doesn't work. And only prioritizing buying people free apartments for life at you know hundreds of thousands it's of dollars. Not, not the right solution. We can't get everyone the help they need. So we're coming in with kind of a nice middle of the road. There, are, There is a lot of space between free apartment for life and everyone has to be on the streets. We can emphasize treatment, can emphasize services, getting them off the streets. Maybe some accountability for how we're spending the money oh. and experiment and see what's working and what's not working. Uh, yeah, it's, it's a crazy idea to, just, measure, to measure these things. Well, and so just San Francisco and LA alone, I mean, four people, four homeless individuals die on the streets of LA every day. That death rate is higher than the death rate in Iraq and Afghanistan for soldiers. So it's literally a war zone. So I thought this was going to be so easy to get states to not follow San Francisco. And and, and what's the goal? The goal of the state really is just to start off by putting in transparency and accountability, I guess, but then also maybe not, maybe not allowing street sleeping, huh? Yeah. I think not continuing to fund local failures when it's ruining cities, but also putting in pay for performance, whether it's the amount of people that you can get off the streets or if you can lower the days in hospitals or incarcerated, there's a bunch of different metrics, but right now this money's zero strings attached. And that's where the opposition comes from. These nonprofit groups that are funded exclusively by the government, they don't want anything touching their funding. It doesn't matter how common sense it is. Once you go after their funding, that's a bridge too far. And, and, and they, they hire lobbyists, they show up. So in this one, it, what was really surprising, these groups apparently never talk to each other. They're always infighting. But once they had a bill that Cicero Action was pushing, they all came together and just terrorized the legislators. First of all, they did not want to compromise at all because I would sit in rooms with them and be like, all right, well, which parts don't you like? There's like all of it. And we had about eight provisions in this bill. They got so mad that the lobbyists we were partnering with in Arizona, they tried to kill his clients' other bills. So his other clients completely related to us to punish him for representing us. And we had all it was. Did the lobbyists want to give up on us then, or is he still going to? No, he's one of my favorite. He he just wanted to fight harder. So yeah, he's he's a good guy. But uh, what you see is by dropping a bill like that, if we didn't introduce the bill, 
we would be nowhere because you just do endless meetings and talking. But because you put the bill out, now it's kind of in public. And Yeah. And I mean, it was an ugly fight, but now it became so clear that these nonprofit groups want no change. The only thing they want is more money. We're the only group coming in because so many other policy area, uh, organizations ignore issues like homelessness. And we're saying this is how you actually start to make the problem better. You, it's effectively some paper performance, some transparency, some accountability. Do you think we can win next year on this one? Oh, yeah. Uh, so another thing that's really critical to do is is poll on issues. Not only is, you know, politics is all about polling. They need to know what voters think because ultimately that's who they're accountable to. But polling helps you figure out how to message this to normal Americans who don't sit and just talk about policy all day. So every time we've run a poll on a state of registered voters, it is a 70 plus issue. 70% wow. of people, because I want to figure out what works for messaging, even when I go as like the caricature of yeah. criminalizing homelessness, which is just one of many things that goes on in our bill and to push people into the needed treatment they they yeah. need to get better. People still support that. Homelessness and the LA, San Francisco experiment has they just, they just realized cities. it's failed. It's yeah. failed and we have to fix it. I mean, Phoenix, Madison, Nashville, Atlanta. I mean, I was in Atlanta by the Capitol and three homeless people People broke into my hotel room while I was in there. Thankfully, I was there, so they didn't steal any of my stuff. But they broke into your hotel. Yeah, room? they must have traded for a skeleton key with one of the workers. Yeah. Wow. So it's it's. Did they just wild. run away when you when you? Yeah, they talked like, "Why are you?" And they're like, "Oh, sorry," and just left. So wow. Atlanta it used to be a great city. Now uh, I've talked to quite a few legislators who are big allies on this. They were actually attacked like on the way into the Capitol. The entire Capitol is surrounded by a homeless encampment. So I think this is an issue where the failure of. San Francisco's approach has made it so obvious that the, something else needs to be done, and we're the only ones offering solutions. This is so this I'm is optimistic. this is one of these things in our society that's interesting to me because you get you get issues where it's very clear something's a bad idea and something's not working, and yet you get these groups. I think you get a lot of very naive big family offices that they hire someone who's like a moderate left person uh, who's in charge, and that person hires someone else who's kind of on their side, but they're actually an extreme far left person, and they end up funding these bad ideas that aren't working somehow. And I'm, it's, it's very strange in our society right now how there's not kind of logical feedback and debate about things that are not working on the extremes. Like, like, like is, is, this, is this new in the last 10 or 20 years? It seems like, because normally how something doesn't work and you'd talk and you'd fix it. And like right now, like we keep doubling down on stupid policy in, in some areas, then we're going and obviously we're winning in some areas, teaching people, but a lot of areas we're not able to win. Like, why is that? Well, I don't know if I fully see that all the time at the state level. Sure, there's advocates who want no compromise. But in Texas, we supported a bill that would have uh, stripped localities of all their funding if they didn't actually take steps to make homelessness better. And all but four Democrats in the Texas Senate voted for this bill. So, I so, mean, this was a so a lot of so a lot of moderate Democrats are basically going along with common sense on these things too. It's only really the extreme that's not. Yeah, and it's what you hear again when when you live in a like DC focused world, which is what we're in right now. That's where you see things turn into Got always hyperpartisan. So you have these extreme hyperpartisan things in DC, but actually, in a lot of states, you get a lot of very reasonable people on both sides working together, which is it's actually a positive view of America. Yeah, and I don't want to pretend that partisanship doesn't exist in states. It's just when they fight on one issue. It doesn't bleed into everything else that goes. Like there will be, you know, five bills that pass unanimously on the floor one day, and then two that are huge fights, all on the same day, and they're fine. You know, still uh, friendly to each other and can work together on solving what are, problems. What are we? We've, so, so you know, a lot of these special interests are nonpartisan special interests. We've talked a little bit about what's kind of a far left special interest. Tell me about a far right special interest you don't like. Oh, let's see. This will be interesting. I think uh, one of the far right special interests that 
it's not even the police groups. I want to be careful. I say this because we we partner with a lot of the police groups and they're really pro reform and they want people to trust them more. Mm-hmm. But there are certain people on the right who view any reform to criminal justice and public safety as just letting everyone out of prison, which is not the case. There is a massive So, so people on the right who are just so skeptical of criminal justice reform. If you touch the word, if you do anything well, to change what we call it, public police. safety innovation, but they're, they're skeptical of that too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but like, for example, last year we had a lot of success on getting states to institute use of force reporting for law enforcement. And in every state, we didn't run a bill unless the law enforcement group signed off on it. But there were still Yet, far right people who, didn't who would like say, it. I don't care that the police support this. I know what the police want. They don't know what they want. They so it was really frustrating. Far people just didn't want any reporting at all on use of force because they're afraid it might show something police are doing that's not good and they don't want any attacks on police, basically. Yeah. Whereas in actuality, when it what it shows is the public thinks this happens far more than it does and doesn't have the context on a lot. We're letting right now, when no data exists, anecdotes win. And that's why isolated incidents on social media completely color how Americans view policing. I want to ask, just step back a little bit about like what you do in general. You're getting laws passed. You strongly believe in with values you believe in. You really like, in your whole world really likes keeping things a little bit quiet sometimes. Like I'm not, like I'm always like, let's put everything online. And you're like, no, Joe, then they would attack me better in different ways. And, and, and I mean, but it seems like a lot of the stories of what you deal with were very compelling where people were able to see them, they, they would naturally support you. Like, are like, 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 what do you think of the whole world of lobbying being as secretive as it is? And are there ways we could be exposing certain parts of it more to, to get people on our side? Well, I would say a, a good way to compromise, like when the bill is moving itself, a lot of times bringing in other pressure and adding in other variables makes things more confusing, but kind yeah. of doing a post-mortem after session where it's like the 10 craziest made up arguments that Jared had to deal with this year, like that, that kind of stuff okay. I think does work. Cause there is an education gap. Like a lot of what lobbying is, is educating. People think it's just schmoozing or it's just buying people off. No, most of it's getting a chance to get in front of a policymaker to pitch your points and to help them better you're, understand You're, you're the inspiring issue. them. And one of the things I liked you telling about some of the people we work with, a lot of them give us a lot better deal to work with us because they get to work on things that they care about. Yeah. Think, I mean, I wouldn't, I, you would have to pay me a lot of money to just work on like procurement contracts and really boring, yeah. tiny tweaks to tax law. Whereas right now, we get to come to these lobbyists who they are all over the political spectrum, but they're all problem solvers and they love fresh approaches. So yeah, they'll take a lower fee. Do some of the lobbyists you meet who they know they're kind of working on something that's bad for the country to help one of their clients, do they ever seem guilty about that? Are they ever kind of like, like you tell they're kind of like, not aligned with what they're doing, but they have to, to make a living or, or like, 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 how does that work? Well, I mean, they're professionals. I almost liken it to, uh, when you're a defense lawyer, like everyone deserves a defense. Everyone deserves God, a lobbyist. They're thinking they themselves like defense yeah, lawyers yeah. for the bad guy. <laughs> but I will say they, uh, they will fire clients all the time too. They if will. So if it's really bad. It was really bad. Yeah. They're like, I can't do this anymore. Yeah. This, is, this is not right. And a lot of them, uh, you know, some of them, they may have made it when they were younger. And now as they get older, they only want to work on things they really care about. Well, those are the right allies to have. So, Jared, before you were working uh, with a couple of different orgs, including now Cicero, on the state level policy, uh, you, what did you do beforehand? Uh, so, I was at the Council of Economic Advisors at the White House, which was one of the organizations. We got all the economic data before everyone else, so we could prepare for policy-wise and also messaging-wise when a bad jobs report was coming out, for example. And then I was also at the Department of Labor, where I worked on rules, mostly deregulatory does, rules. Does it make sense to go to D.C. and work on these things? Were you able to get things done? So, 
as much as I like arguing that we should stay out of D.C., I'm mostly focusing on Congress. I think Congress is a waste of time. The administrative state is not a waste of time. It has so much power now. I mean, it's what Congress used to be. That's where the real law. A lot, a lot of power has gone into the administrative state, which is all the regulatory agencies and all the rules. And so by being there, you can change and fix things and make it work better or worse. Yeah. And I think a lot of policy groups and some in D.C. are doing a good job of this are focusing on equipping those in the administrative state, you know, bureaucrats or political appointees like I was on giving them resources to help write rules. Basically, if, you're, if you know people who are in power, you can help make the administrative state work better. Yeah. And I was just open for any ideas. We were bringing in uh, people from every policy organization I could find, even left-leaning ones, just being like, hey, if you were at Department of Labor, which rule would you write? And a lot of groups... Or which, had, rule, or which rule would you get rid of? Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly. <laughs> What's amazing, though, is... it. It shouldn't be this way, but it's actually harder to get rid of a regulation than to create a new one. So you just create a new one to make one to fix one and make it better. <laughs> that is, or you have to go through all these steps to my, try to. My, I got to be friends uh, with Paul Ray, who was running mm-hmm. OIRA, which is the regulator yeah. of the regulators, and it, was, it is really cool how you could be thoughtful about putting in things to fix the system and make it work better there. Yeah, it just does take a very long time, and that's why I think a lot of missed opportunities were left. Uh, well, that's why I, I'm still I, I'm still more inspired by working at state level to actually prove things out in that laboratory. It's probably easier. Yeah, I mean, think about the benefits of real-time learning when you're running a reform in 10 states, all on different topics. You're getting so much feedback instantaneously. In just one year, you can turn around, write a paper, run those bills, be fully prepared the next year to do a nationwide push. Like This is the kind of learning and iterative change that I think needs to come to the policy process. Let's talk about one other win. Uh, Florida, we talked about, is one of the most innovative states. So in Texas, of course, we, we fund our vocational schools based on the success of their students. I mean, salaries have gone up over 100%. We like talking about this idea a lot. Uh, what did we get done in Florida in higher education this last year? So in Florida now, in a comprehensive workforce package, we were able to advocate for a change so that all performance funding, or out of all performance funding, two-thirds will be based on student earnings. So now we're working with the department to write the rule to make sure that it goes in place in the right way. But this is a huge change. A state like Florida admitting that Texas really did a great job by focusing on earnings on how it funds technical and, and schools. Because if you focus on something like just graduation, people could fake graduation, but it's harder to fake your students' earnings. Yeah. And what I really like about this is, sure, I think most people, if you sat down with them, would agree technical schools should be funded based on how well students do in their careers. Yeah. But I want to bring this to universities. This is You're a what, radical, Jerry. I, well, <laughs> it doesn't have to be 100% funded on it, but let's at least get a little accountability. A little, if it. people are all going to university yeah. and none of them are getting jobs and they're all becoming angry protesters, maybe that university is <laughs> not doing great work. There yeah. should be some sense of accountability. Yeah. And my point is, you know, professional protesters don't get paid a lot of money. So if we can even have 20% of a college's funding based on how its students actually then do. it has to care would... a little bit about making sure people aren't dropping out of society mm-hmm. and doing better. That's interesting. Yeah. And Cicero worked on bills like that in quite a few other states as well. Uh, the colleges are very powerful. The university is even more powerful. But one thing uh, while doing polling that I found was really interesting, back in 2015, the Pew was asking this question, do you think colleges and universities are having a positive or negative effect on the way things are going in America? Back then, only 37% of Republicans said negative. 
Now, when I just asked that question in a poll in Georgia, it was 73%. So in six years, it went from 37% we view have, them negatively to we have 73%. Some, we have some challenges. I hear some people are starting new universities to address this. <laughs> I, I've heard that as well. But yeah, that's a fun area to fight on. And I think with healthcare and higher ed, there are massive portions of state spending, and we need fresh new ideas. Well, hopefully, and hopefully a lot of this could be bipartisan. If you're if you're doubling people's salaries in Texas vocational schools with the right incentive, at least in some parts of Florida and other states, there's obviously something to learn from this. Definitely. That's an optimistic note to leave it on. You know, the core principles of CISROs, we're taking what works in our free society and applying it to the areas that aren't working. And we're figuring out how and why innovation happens. And we're putting those conditions into those areas. We're putting transparency, we're putting accountability, making sure people get rewarded for solving the problems we all want solved, whether it's in criminal justice, whether it's in healthcare, whether it's in other parts of how our government should be working better. And, and Jared, where can people go to learn more about what we're doing? Well, if they want to see the research and the ideas that inform what I work on at Cicero Action, the best place to go is ciceroinstitute.org. There's a ton of great resources from all my colleagues who are way smarter than me, who give all the material that then I can bring to legislators. And, you're, and you have Cicero Action site as well? Yes, ciceroaction.org too. Awesome. Thanks, Joe. Nice. Thanks, Joe.